After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 103, where we go back Back to the the past past. and read a comic book from the publishers of yesteryear. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and the hellish fireprints of the evil dark side himself. Wait, that's not the right one that we're doing? Is that... What are we doing this week, Chris? Kind of looks like them, but no, we're actually in part four of our Age of Apocalypse epic oh, right. series here. And this week we're going to be wrapping up four of the miniseries. That's Amazing X-Men, Gambit and the Externals, Excalibre, and X-Men. And we're going to pay special attention to Amazing X-Men number four, it's kind of because everything sort of converges in that book. And mm-hmm. uh, we're going to cover that one at the very end of this episode. But first, Amazing X-Men number two, cover dated April 1995. Stories called Sacrificial Lambs by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Cubitt. Let's talk about Fabian. Now, we met him a couple of episodes back, uh, so we'll give the quicker version. Mm. He was born New Year's Eve 1961 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Moved to the United States when he was four, and he grew up in New Jersey. Taught himself to read and write by reading comic books. He'd attend Rutgers University and graduated in 1983 with a degree in advertising and public relations. He worked for the Berkeley Publishing Group until 1985. Also in 1985, he joined the staff at Marvel Comics. Uh, this is He was in, in production, a manufacturing assistant mm-hmm. at start. Uh, he'd later move on to the promotions department as an advertising manager. Now, all during this time, he began taking some freelance writing assignments, writing short stories for Marvel's promo magazine, Marvel Age. Nicias' first published comic story was in Cyforce Number no. 9 that came out with a July 1987 cover date. This led to fill-in work on titles such as Classic X-Men, for which he provided backup stories. After Tom DeFalco, then Marvel's editor-in-chief, created the superhero team The New Warriors, he gave the titular series to Nicias. And in 1990, Nisi became editor of Marvel's children's imprint, Star Comics, which uh, dissolved within a year. Not, not really his fault, I don't think, but the, you know, no, no. sort of the times were a change in. It was not time for that kind of stuff. Uh, but at that point, he left Marvel's staff and moved entirely to freelance writing. In 1991, Nisi joined with artist Rob Liefeld in co-plotting and writing the final three issues of The New Mutants that was 98 to 100. In these issues, Fabian co-created Deadpool and Shatterstar, as well as the mutant team X-Force. Liefeld, I almost said Liefeld, and Nisiesa, (laughs) then producing an ongoing X-Force title beginning with number one uh, in August 1991. Initially, Nisiesa was a scripter only, but after Rob Liefeld left Marvel, he drew until issue nine, plotted until issue 12, Fabian became its full writer, and he remained until 1995. By the end of 1992, Nisiesa became regular scripter for X-Men Volume 2, beginning with number 12. That had a September 1992 cover date, art handled mostly by Andy Kubert. And over the next three years, Fabian Nisiesa was heavily in the X-Men mix, while it went through some of the franchise's best-known crossovers and events. For example, 
the Age of Apocalypse, which we're reading right now. Hey, now across the table, we got Andy Cupid. Born February 27th, 1962, he grew up in Dover, New Jersey. He's the son of Joe Cubitt and the brother of Adam Cubitt. He'd graduate from the Cubitt School. I don't even know if I don't even know if I'm saying their name right. But, uh, I, I, I believe we, we are correct in when we say Cubitt. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, I'm thinking of that little orange thing jumping up a pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it Cooper? <laughs> nah. Well, we'll say Cupid. Uh, now, his first gig was as a letterer for DC Comics in 1980, and his first credited artwork was in a story called Old Soldiers Never Die. Now, that appeared in Sergeant Rock, number 393, and had an October 1984 cover date. Uh, later on, Adam happened to be at the right place at the right time, and he found himself as the fill-in penciler on Uncanny X-Men following the big Im- image exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, this would score him a regular gig on X-Men Volume 2, and he drew that vol- he drew X-Men Volume 2 number 30, this is March 1994, cover date, and that's the one that featured the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. Also, he'd still be on the books when this Age of Apocalypse thing went down, so here he is. All right. Now, into the story, we open with that Graves boy being taunted by the Horseman Abyss on the Brotherhood's transport ship. Now, Jeremy Graves was the young boy whose family copycat chatted up in Amazing X-Men number one. We talked about that two weeks ago, two episodes ago. Now, Abyss feeds off of Jeremy's fears, which uh, we're guessing is his power, or at least one of his powers. Okay. Um... Fair enough. Uh, Now, he uh, tells Jeremy that no matter how far his family runs, they will never be safe. And uh, they're headed to Eurasia, incidentally, which might just be the next place Apocalypse is looking to take over. He's kind of been sniffing around there, uh, along with the rest of the world, of course. He's going to get to it all eventually. Uh, Back in Maine, the X-Men were taunted by the... Cardinal Madri. You see, they reprogrammed the Human High Council's Savior Sentinels. Banshee elders Exodus to take out the Brotherhood, and he goes right to work doing just that. Meanwhile, Quicksilver rushes off to protect the humans from the Sentinels, and also to give chase to a few members of the Brotherhood. Not long before he catches up, he is Quicksilver, after all, and unhoods a Brotherhood member. He's shocked to learn that it's his sister, the Scarlet Witch! Or, you know, that member of the Brotherhood who's also a shapeshifter. There's a lot of shapeshifting happening. I, 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 do, I do not like it. It's underhanded. Uh, but Quicksilver is dumbfounded and gets conked on the head during his days when he's distracted by the amazing uh, visage of his sister. Before Copycat can kill Quicksilver, Dazzler gets involved and disarms the shapeshifter. After reading Copycat the Riot Act, Dazzler is blasted by a sentinel. Exodus swoops in to block the Sentinel's killing blow, and this becomes a bone of contention between Exodus and Quicksilver, as Pietro would have rathered Paris follow the escaping Brotherhood members, rather than save Dazzler. Yes. Now nearby, Storm blasts a few Sentinels with lightning. Iceman is able to pull himself together. You remember he exploded last issue. Uh, and he informs the team that the Brotherhood members Arclight, Spine, and Yeti, quote, aren't a problem anymore. Banshee continues chasing the others all the way back to their ark. He runs into the Cardinal Madri hanging upside down from a tree, thanks to Abyss. Now, you see, with the X-Men's arrival, the Madri might have failed to keep the humans from escaping to Eurasia, and the penalty for failure, even possible failure, is death. Oops. Well, you know, you got to take a hard line with these kind of things. You can't let things slide, yeah. I'm sure that's in the orientation package. (laughs) Sure, yeah. You got to expect that. Now, Abyss reveals to Banshee that he has Jeremy Graves' Inside his body. And he claims he'll only free the boy if Banshee is able to deliver Quicksilver to him. Otherwise, the kid's gonna bite the big one. 
Now Banshee returns to the evac site and finds a bunch of humans reeling in psionic pain. This is also thanks to Abyss. Uh, Banshee reports what he's learned to the X-Men with the trading Pietro for Jeremy thing we just heard about, and Quicksilver decides to look into it. Storm offers to to accompany him, but is turned down, and she goes anyway. I mean, who's in charge here anyway, right? Well, why did she even ask? Well, just go. (laughs) Uh, What is the difference, you know? Uh, Quicksilver follows rushing over to the Ark and sees Jeremy wrapped up in Abyss's nasty nasty tendrils. Storm charges in after the boy, and Pietro follows, and once they find Jeremy, Quicksilver finds himself getting all wrapped up in Abyss's tendrils. Abyss reveals that he released Jeremy because he'd lost all his flavor, comparing him to an old piece of gum. They chat for a bit. Quicksilver actually attempts to reason with Abyss, telling him that the way Apocalypse does things is wrong, and that that it is possible for humans and mutants to peacefully coexist. And Abyss just laughs. Oh, and also attacks! Yes, uh, now Quicksilver then grabs Abyss's tendrils. Hey, now, hey. Ooh, and proceeds to wrap Abyss up in them. Now, this causes Abyss to get sucked into his own void, I so that's I, another one of his powers. I think I saw a, a Looney Tunes cartoon just like that, right? The kind of guy pulled himself so, into, into his own knot. box. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Storm and Pietro, successfully, they've walked back to the evac point. Uh, Jeremy runs back over to his family. Uh, Dazzler informs the team that they were able to re-re-reprogram the Sentinels, and all the humans can now be saved. They're going to be loaded into the Sentinels and sent over to the Human High Council in Eurasia. Uh, We switch scenes to New York City's Heaven Nightclub, where our buddy Rex interrogates Karma, trying to learn about the location of the X-Men's base. Nearby, we see that Sebastian Shaw and Apocalypse are watching this happen. Rex tells Karma that he already knows where the X-Men are hiding, and he really just wants to know uh, what their defensive setup looks like from her. Uh, Apocalypse quickly grows tired of this and decides, screw it, we're just going to pay Magneto a visit now. All right. Head on into Amazing X-Men number 3, May 1995 cover date. This is titled Parents of the Atom by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert. We open with Magneto at the grave of Charles Xavier. His tombstone reads, Any dream worth having is a dream worth fighting for. And guess what? Magneto (laughs) talks to the grave a lot. A about lot. dreams, and if there was there a picture of of Xavier on the grave, then he would, you know, <laughs> then definitely would he would have been talking. He would have sat down. Yeah, yeah. he would have been like, let me. I got a few <laughs> things to say uh, about dreams and the price they might have. Enter Bishop, and once again he's packing heat. He tells Magneto that now is not the time for reminiscing. Considering that best case scenario, the world's about to end. I say this is pretty much the only time for reminiscing. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is it. This is the is end. It? So. If you're going to reflect to do it now, you're not going to have a chance later. Uh, in fairness, there is the, the he is there to report that the mansion's defenses have been breached. With that, he proceeds to start blasting at some infinites, and then enter... The Vanisher, alias Telford Telly Porter. Hey! Oh. His first appearance was X-Men number 2, November 1963. He was created by Stan and Jack. Now, this is the X-Men's first non-magnetic-powered supervillain. Uh, during an early battle with the team, he fell prey to Professor X's go-to finishing move, the Mind Wipe. If you read any Silver Age X-Men, he did this a lot. A lot. Like, most of the time. Like, like way too many times, frankly. Like nine yeah. out of ten X-Men battles, he was like, all right, Mind Wipe, mind done. Wipe. Boop. Now, uh, when Telly's memory came back, he'd join up with 
the dreaded Factor 3. <laughs> now, those were the losers who wanted to take over the world by instigating World War III between the United States and the Soviet Union. He would actually side with the X-Men against Factor 3's alien leader towards the end of that deal. Uh, he would return from a lengthy hiatus to join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who uh, were bothering the champions and the Fantastic Four around this time, unsuccessfully. Yeah, he uh, did lead the ragtag group of mutant thieves known as the Fallen Angels, and we talked about them a few weeks ago. They're the group with Gomi, Ariel, Devil Dinosaur, Moon Boy, Boom Boom, a real odd grouping of heroes. Uh, yeah. Seems perfect for the Vanisher. Uh, but he wouldn't be a hero for long. He was coerced back into villainy by Asylum, but to fight the New Warriors, which is right around where he, where he was when the Age of Apocalypse started. So... Vanisher tells Magneto that he ain't there to fight. He's just acting as Apocalypse's taxi service, dropping the infinites off. And with that, he leaves. <laughs> that was worth giving him a bio, right? Uh, don't worry, he will be back. We will have okay. to deal with him again. Uh, Bishop and Magneto tear the infinites apart just in time for the arrival of Apocalypse himself. He lands with a Kashkakam, causing the heroes to go flying every which way. Bishop reaches for his gun, but Magneto causes it to explode. Hopeful that it will be strong enough a blast to kill Apocalypse. It wasn't. I mean, it wasn't even strong enough to kill Bishop. Really? Uh, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, you're going to have to come harder than that, buddy. <laughs> now, Apocalypse stands over the fallen X-Men and ponders the importance of Bishop. Then his thoughts go to baby Charles, who is, at this moment, still in the belly of Nanny. If you remember, it was either last week or the week before, uh, Nanny went into, like, the doomsday mode and turned into an egg right. with the, with, to protect the baby. Uh, now, they are in the labyrinthine underground Morlock tunnels below the X-Mansion. Uh, under the X-Mansion, she runs into the Vanisher, who's been lurking in the shadows. Why not? At this point, she produces no less than a half-dozen plasma blasters... <laughs> All trained on poor Mr. Porter. Yeah, I mean, you got to see this image. It's okay. like just, it's like, it's insane. Just it's, all these like guns pop out of her, just aimed on him. A pure 90s, you know, just gun oh, fest. Sure. Yeah, beautiful. For sure. uh, moving ahead now, Quicksilver and Storm's team of X-Men return from Maine. After surveying the damage, Quicksilver runs the grounds and finds that everyone's been abducted. Exodus finds Magneto's helmet in a smoking crater. Quicksilver tries to keep the team's spirits up, pointing to all the dead infants as a sign that Magneto and Bishop were able to defend themselves before they yeah. bit it, you know, like... <laughs> uh, then Iceman shows up and produces the Vanisher, who he'd found in those Morlock tunnels. Vanisher is dead, by the way, courtesy of Nanny. <laughs> How would you like that in your official Marvel handbook oh, bio boy. entry? Killed by Nanny. Nanny. Oh, man. I hope it was, you know, that you got a friend dresser like... <laughs> Uh, Quicksilver dispatches D Dazzler and Exodus into the tunnels to hunt down Nanny and Charles. He sends Iceman off to locate Rogue, which we discussed last week. And has Storm and Banshee remain in the mansion in case anybody returns, and then Quicksilver himself runs off to... The Heaven Nightclub. Where else? Where does anyone go in this uh, age of apocalypse? <laughs> That's it. Uh, we have Angel arriving, and he thinks about how everything seems to be coming apart. You know, Karma is missing. Uh, Scarlet has been arrested as a spy. Not that uh, Scarlet, she's also, of course. Yeah, she's also knocked up, but uh, but he doesn't know that. Right. Uh, then Quicksilver shows up, and he punches Angel right in the mouth, which happens an awful lot to poor Angel, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, you'd figure him playing both sides would result in less punches to the face. That, what are you, gonna do? you think that's why you would do that, but no, right? you know what I mean? You might as well pick I a side. I would rather not be punched, so I'm going to be friends with everybody. Yeah. Uh, now, Angel is done playing games. He's, he's all, screw it. 
I'll tell you exactly what happened to Magneto and Bishop. And he does. We learn that Bishop is in Quebec, and Magneto is in Apocalypse's Citadel. We left with uh, Pietro needing to decide what to do next, either stay the course with Magneto's plan or to abort Magneto's plan and redirect the X-Men's efforts towards actually saving his father. Mm, what to do, what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, over in Quebec, Bishop is being tortured by the Madri. They are chanting, may the fittest survive, which sounds more like a moderate annoyance than any kind of torture. But mm-hmm. uh, once his mind becomes malleable by this uh, endless chanting... <laughs> Enter the Shadow King. In probing Bishop's mind, he sees many images from the prime Marvel universe. For example, battling Xavier on the astral plane. That happened in X-Men number 117 from January 1979. The death of Professor Xavier. X-Men volume 2 number 41, just a few months before this, February 1995. The formation of the original X-Men. Probably X-Men number 1. Yeah, that was the one, pretty much. And then uh, Apocalypse's death. Maybe during the Executioner song? I can't be sure. We'll see. Uh, And Jerry Curl Bishop next to Xavier. Which could be any time after Uncanny X-Men number 282. But they are recognizing Jerry Curl Bishop, and that's the important thing. Indeed. Uh, This this one's the most confusing, though, to the Shadow King, and it's not due to Bishop's awful hair. It's because he wonders how a younger Bishop could ever stand beside an older Xavier. Mm, he, He deduces from this that Bishop is likely from a different reality. Pretty smart fella. Uh, Bishop is able to expunge the Shadow King from his mind, at which point a Bish shows up and kills a bunch of Madri. He then uh, refers to Bishop as the most dangerous mutant of all because he knows things nobody else does. Yes. Hop back to Xavier's here. Uh, Quicksilver returns, hopeful that Rogue's team has also returned. But they haven't. And we read all about their exploits last week. Uh, He is greeted by Storm and Banshee, and he shares with them his plan. He decides that it's more important to everybody that they save Bishop, not Magneto. Mm. He also decides to forego the hunt for his own baby brother, Charles. (laughs) A little sibling jealousy, perhaps. I don't know. It's not just the Summers anymore. (laughs) Now he can have Pietro's involved. The Shears, too. Now, that's the end of this issue, but since so many of the threads merge in Amazing X-Men number four, we're going to save that one for the end. And instead, we'll jump into Gambit and the Externals number two from April 1995. The story is called Where No External Has Gone Before by Fabian Niciesa and Tony Daniel. Since we already met Fabian, let's talk a little Tony. Antonio Salvador Daniel was born somewhere in these United States. His first professional work was for Comico's Elemental Sexy Lingerie Special that came out for the 1993 Chicago Comic-Con. He would hop over to Marvel and take over the art chores on X-Force after Greg Capullo flew the coop over to Toddtown. His first issue on X-Force was number 28, November 1993 cover date. And he'd hang hang around long enough to take part in this here Age of Apocalypse. Now, this is the very beginning of what would become a storied career, so uh, we'll have more to say on the other end of that. Yeah. Now we hop into the story, and the externals arrive somewhere else, where they run smack dab into the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. So why not meet them? Let's meet them. We got Gladiator, real name Kalark. First appearance was X-Men number 107, October 1997, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Uh, leader, this is the leader of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Superboy of the Legion of Superheroes with a name in, in homage of the Philip Wiley novel Gladiator that many folks believe many of Superman's trappings were based upon. 
Uh, we go much deeper on the Gladiator novel during episode 63, The Death of Superman, Part 1, which is available in the archives. Uh, Gladiator is a member of the Strontian race, was ordered by the Shi'ar to murder the Strontian elders, and he did. And he was the only one who was willing. This was enough for him to be named leader of the Imperial Guard. He fought the X-Men during the Phoenix Saga and later aided them in battle against a Shi'ar traitor. Gladiator had a run-in with the Fantastic Four while on the trail of some skull, some scrolls. This is the issue with the sort of iconic John Byrne cover where Gladiator has the thing hoisted over his head. A cover that Byrne would later homage himself after making a move over to Superman for DC Comics. He was good at doing that. If you, if you look at yeah. a lot of his covers, there are a lot of like Byrne on Byrne yeah, yeah. to himself. <laughs> Gladiator would even battle Thor to a standstill. Uh, he'd also have a run-in with the Avengers during the Kree-Shiar War. This story we know as uh, Operation Galactic Storm, which ran forever. Yeah, it was a long one. And uh, until you said his real name out loud, uh, I didn't get that connection. Clark. Clark. There Clark. you go. Clark. Ah, ta-da. I must have written that name a thousand times, and I never said it out loud. Clark so. and you know. There you are. <laughs> Now, the next one we're going to meet is Oracle. Not that Oracle. Uh, real name, Sybil. First appearance, X-Men number 107, October 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Now, she's a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Saturn Girl of the Legion of Superheroes. I, I don't know if we made it clear, but the Shi'ar is yeah. based on the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, basically, Marvel's Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, yeah for sure. Now, uh, she ran in with the X-Men during the Dark Phoenix Saga and gets beaten up by Wolverine. She'd uh, team up with Rom to battle an evil space knight. She battled against the Star Jammers and Excalibur, and she took uh, took control over Rick Jones during Operation Galactic Storm. Now, Starbolt, his first appearance was X-Men 107, October 77. Also, Claremont and Cockrum, also a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Sunboy of the Legion. He was part of that whole Dark Phoenix thing, thing, which we'll be saying a lot, and he was also part of Operation Galactic Storm, and we'll be seeing a lot of that, too. Uh, he was also Oracle's lover, and that's something we hopefully won't be seeing a lot. <laughs> yeah. We got Fang. First appearance, X-Men 107, October 1977. Claremont and Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Timberwolf of the Legion of Superheroes. He's a more feral fellow than his compatriots. Uh, was present for the Dark Phoenix saga. Would later be transformed into a brood and had to be killed by Wolverine. Wolverine would then take his costume. Uh, Wolverine, yeah, Wolverine in the Fang costume actually got an action figure during the Toy Biz X Men line. Uh, this figure was released in 1995 as part of the Mutant Genesis series. That set would also include Sunfire, Cameron Hodge, Maverick, the Acolyte Senyaka, and the Executioner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heck of a toy line, boy. It's, Isn't it? it's like well, the kids were like, oh, Cameron Hodge. Love it. Me, mommy, mommy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Nightshade, first appearance. Guess what, boys and girls? X-Men number 107 by Claremont and Cockroom. A member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard analogous to Shadow Lass of the Legion of Superheroes. Originally known as Nightshade, it changed so as not to be confused with Charlton DC Comics character with the same name. And guess what? She was also there during the Dark Phoenix Saga, so how about yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> We got Titan. First appearance, same as it ever was. X-Men yeah. number 107, October 1977, Claremont and Cockrum. This is a member of the Shi'ar Guard, analogous to Colossal Boy of the Legion of Superheroes. 
Dark Phoenix Saga. Uh, fought yeah. against Excalibur under the orders of Deathbird. He'd face off against uh, Captain Britain there, and he was also for, there for Operation Galactic Storm. Mentor, first appearance, X-Men 107, Claremont and Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Brainiac 5 of the Legion of Superheroes. And actually looks just like him, you know, I mean, yeah. almost like too close, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, other than that, same as the rest stuff, uh, you know, uh, Dark <laughs> Phoenix Saga, Operation Galactic Storm. <laughs> also, there's Impulse. First appearance was at X-Men 107, Claremont and Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Wildfire of the Legion of Superheroes, and the character's name would later be changed to Pulsar, so as not to be confused with DC's Impulse, but the Legionnaire, not the Speedster, although DC Comics wasn't really concerned with the confusion there themselves, so I don't see why Marvel should have worried. <laughs> uh, this is a being of pure energy, only contained by their costume, just like Wildfire, the man with the, uh, what is he, he has the faceplate, reminds me of like a welder's faceplate, that's yeah, this thing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we got Smasher, real name, Vril Rock, which is pretty cool. Right, um, right. First appearance, X-Men 107, Claremont Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Ultra Boy, the Legion of Superheroes. He's a member of the Imperial Guard. That's, you know, that's about it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, his name seems to be a mixture of Legionnaire's Vril Dox Brainiac and Rock Crin yep. Cosmic Boy, even though he's based on Ultra Boy. What do you got to do? Well, who knows? Uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got Hobgoblin. Not that Hobgoblin. Uh, first appearance, X-Men 107, Claremont Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Chameleon Boy of the Legion, and just like Mentor, looks just like him. Uh, if you haven't guessed, he's a shapeshifter, as if we haven't had enough of those yet. Yeah, really. It's a little overly shapeshifty around here, but... Uh, Indeed. There's Scintilla, first appearance. Yep, X-Men 107, Claremont and Cockrum. A member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Shrinking Violet of the Legion of Superheroes, originally known as Midget, although that likely wasn't changed to avoid any confusion. Her deal is that she shrinks. Hmm. Uh, Warstore, real names are Bene and Cecil. It's spelled B apostrophe N-E-E and C apostrophe C-L-L. First appearance was X-Men number 137, September 1980, cover date, created by Claremont and John Byrne. These are members of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Duo Damsel and Pharaoh Lad. Cecil is the big guy, and Beanie rides on his back, and they were named after Beanie and Cecil, a puppet show by Bob Clampett, which ran on the Paramount Television Network from 1949 to 1955. The show won three Primetime Emmy Awards and actually had a cartoon and a comic book. Mm -hmm. That was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, that might be an indictment, though, on how awful television was back then. If uh, puppets freak you out, do not Google these guys. They will kind of make you nauseous. Nightmares, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, back to the story. The externals are, as you might imagine, pretty freaked out. Even more so with the realization that Apocalypse Lackey Richter joined them for the port jump. Gambit decides their best course of action, running away. Hey, their feet will carry them. He's a man after uh, my own heart. I like indeed. <laughs> Richter puts his hands up and surrenders because he's literally the worst. Um, now, the externals dodge the Imperial Guard's attack and are able to get away by running into a forest, where Gambit attempts to plan their next move. Only, as luck would have it, the forest they pick to hide out in appears to be alive. Krakoa, the living forest? And I wish. Now, uh, the Jungle Vines grab the team and hoist them away. 
just as the Imperial Guard comes a-calling. With the externals nowhere in sight, the Guard calls off the search. They give up pretty quick. Uh, We rejoin the externals in an underground cavern, still all tangled in the vines. They're approached by a group of folks who inform them that this world is dying. Yeah, what else is new? That's right. You can't know that by now. Uh, back with the Imperial Guard, Richter reveals to Gladiator that he'd affixed a tracker onto a member of the Externals, so they shouldn't be too terribly difficult to find. Oracle, not that article, gives him a scan to ensure he's not lying, and it turns out that he is on the up and up. Suddenly, there's a blink, not that blink, and Oracle faints. It was as though for a moment, everything ceased to exist. She reveals that Dickens' spies were right, and that this world will be next to fall in the Nexus expansion. Hmm, wonder what a Deken is. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Emperor Deken, full name Deken Naramani. First appearance was X-Men number 97, February 1976 cover, created by Claremont and Cockrum. He's the brother of Deathbird and Lalandra, one-time ruler of the Shi'ar Empire and abuser of the Emkran crystal. Would kidnap and attempt to bang Scott and Alex with Summer's mother, Catherine. Only she was already pregnant, but we wouldn't learn about that until around 2005. This would be the third Summers brother, Gabriel Vulcan Summers. The rumor had it that Adam X, the Extreme, was originally intended to be revealed as Scott and Alex's brother, and would have been the biological son of Catherine and Deken. But nope, they didn't do that. They went the, no. Vul- the Vulcan route. Uh, with X, with the X-Men's aid, Lilandra and the Imperial Guard were able to overthrow Deken. Back into the story, Oracle laments that Deken, she laments Deken ever finding the Emkron crystal at all, um, which uh, this is the same thing that Gambit and the gang are there to steal a chunk of, if yeah. you recall. Uh, back in the underground, the externals meet their host, a Shi'ar and Mephistoid hybrid named Jonath. A uh, Mephist what? A Mephistoid. First appearance, X-Men 107, October 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. They are a race of humanoid felines, and we're going to meet one in just a little bit. Thundercats? Is that what you mean, or is that, is that something? Okay. <laughs> Very close. Okay. Right. <laughs> now, uh, Jonah fills them in on the blinks, which show everyone glimpses of the complete and utter eradication of all reality. We're going to be saying Blink a lot, and we're not going to be referring to the character. And we're not talking about Blink. That's the annoying no. part, folks. If, you, if you're confused, join the club. Join us. So, yes. <laughs> now, he reveals that after Deken got control of the Emkron crystal, he usurped the Shi'ar throne from his sister... Deathbird, whose real name is Kalsi Naramani. First appearance was Miss Marvel number 9, September 1977, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Keith Pollard. A Shi'ar who was, was once exiled to Earth, where she'd join up with Modok and AIM and battle Ms. Marvel. After her siblings did their thing and Lilandra unseated Deken as ruler of the Shi'ar Empire, Deathbird decided she wanted the throne for herself, and uh, that didn't go her way. She'd side with her sister during Operation Galactic Storm. He also killed his other sister, Lilandra, who I think we met during Legion Quest. Uh, Jubilee is none too pleased and to be stranded on a planet that will very soon be eradicated in a crystal wave. I guess nobody told that Earth isn't doing much better. It's not a lot safer right now, you know, but I guess, you know, you you take the uh, danger you know than the danger you don't. Uh, Then Richter and the Imperial Guard storm in. A blink happens, not that blink, and the crystal wave begins, and then another, and this one leaves half of the Imperial Guard in crystalline form. 
when all that when all seems lost, the externals are rescued by the Star Jammers, who are led by Deathbird and include Chad or Chad, if you will. First appearance, X Men 104, April 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. A lizard-like Star Jammer, often depicted as a gentle giant of sorts. Uh, he's usually accompanied by a tiny little fuzzy alien pet called Kriri. Or Kriri, one of those. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, the uh, Star Jammers aided the X Men during the Dark Phoenix saga, and while we're talking about the Star Jammers, they were a team of space pirates that Dave Cockrum had tried to pitch to Marvel for several years, but uh, they couldn't fit them in for whatever reason. <laughs> Probably because they couldn't hold a series or even yeah. a simulation. But Chris Claremont <laughs> was all right, you know, he loved it yeah, all. Claire, Claremont was more than happy to take him when he was offered to uh, offer these characters. I mean, I think if someone's coming with I got, I got a character that's a talking tomato, they would have been like, sure, why not? We'll try why not? Whatever. <laughs> uh, also part of the crew was Hepzibah. First appearance was X-Men 107. The same one that all the Shi'ar imper- first appeared <laughs> in, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Uh, she is that Mephistoid that we mentioned a little bit ago. She was rescued from a prison camp by Corsair, Christopher Summers, the father of Cyclops and Havoc, and leader of the Star Jammers. Was named Hepzibah by Corsair after the character Mamzelle Hepzibah from Walt Kelly's Pogo, because her actual name is unintelligible. How, how much harder could it be to say than Hepzibah? Really? That's, you know, that's tough. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Rounding out the, uh, the uh, lineup here is Raza. Full name, Raza Longknife. First appeared X-Men 107, Claremont Cockrum. A cyborg swordsman rescued by from a prison camp by Corsair. And that's oh, about it. Right, fine. Uh, now back to the story. It's here that Gambit sees that his goal at present is more than just snatching a chunk of crystal. It's about saving the whole ding-dang universe. Yeah, about that, Gambit. Yeah. Uh, I got bad <laughs> news for this universe. But uh, we'll go on to Gambit and the Externals number three, May 1995, cover date. To the Limits of Infinity by Fabian Nicieza and Salvador Larocca. We met Fabian, so on to Salvador, just a quickie here. Uh, born in 1967 in Valencia, Spain. Started off as a cartographer before getting a gig with Marvel UK. He contributed to Dark Angel and Death's Head 2. His first mainstream work in North America was a brief stint on The Flash. From here, he'd have not, a brief, not as brief a stint in three years on Ghost Rider, which takes us up to right about now. Uh, this is all still very early in Salvador La Roca's career. He had, goes on again to have a very storied uh, career. But uh, some, still working now, yeah. Uh, absolutely. It, you know, we'll, we'll peel him back in other episodes and maybe at the end of this whole shebang. Uh, the externals arrive at the planet they're supposed to be sneaking into, which appears to be quite the daunting task, considering the planet is surrounded with a fusion energy absorption system. These, don't you hate those? Uh, the, star, <laughs> the Star Jammers <laughs> decide to run into fear to distract Deken's aerial armada so that the externals can beam down planetside. Upon landing, Gambit, Layla, and Deathbird break off to hunt down the crystal, leaving the others to deal with Deken's goons. Jubilee is positive that they're being set up to be sacrificed, and Sunspot assures her it's for the greater good. 
which doesn't really sound like an argument to the contrary, no, if you ask me. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, but it's okay. It's it's good, uh, though, that we're going to be sacrificed. <laughs> Don't you understand? All right. Rah, rah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deathbird leads Gambit to the crystal. That's just one problem. It's three stories tall. Uh, but there they're going to need to chip a piece off, which we thought was the entire plan all along anyway. Yeah. He was never going to bring the entire thing. I, back, how so. are you going to bring that whole crystal? Like, yeah. <laughs> did, you bring a, did you bring a U-Haul with you? Anyway. <laughs> now, as they approach the crystal, an arm pops out of it and drags Lila inside. Gambit and Deathbird follow, hopping in themselves. Inside, they find Jaff. First appearance, X-Men 108, December 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Now, Jaff is a, gu- is a guardian of the Emkron crystal and the resident of the nexus of all realities. Back to the story. Outside, the externals see that the crystal is glowing and that the blinks have started. Chris, why are we calling these occurrences blinks when there's a character <laughs> with the very name looming large during during this event? Yes. Well, you know, there's a very important person named Blink. Well, they couldn't have thought of another word for this? Rift? I know. Yeah, uh, maybe. You know, wind, uh, there's so many, you know, somebody, they could even just make up a word. Snap. Or just like bleep. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, this is the, this is from the uh, group that made up Bamf, but for this, they couldn't make up something new. Uh, so, and Snicked. This is what, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway. Uh, Zark. Yeah. <laughs> then Gladiator with Richter in tow arrive on the scene. Inside the crystal, Jaff leads Gambit and Deathbird toward the heart of the M. Cran. There they find both Lila Cheney and Emperor Deken in a sort of suspended animation. Deathbird goes to kill her brother while the Gittin is good, only to find herself also plopped right into stasis. Gambit wants some answers, and luckily Jaff is more than happy to give them. Turns out anyone who ever approached the M. Cran crystal always wanted something in return, except the X-Men. How is it? What aren't they using this to reverse the what? I, anyway, uh, mm-hmm. he goes on to say, "Well, we'll just let him explain it." And and, and you know he's always wanted to answer this question because he's he's gonna go on here. Uh, yes. <laughs> says, See the inside of the Emcron crystal, the neutron sun. It's a nexus point between all matter and all antimatter. That means all matter and all antimatter crossing over to every single different reality in existence. Think of the M-Cron like a doorway. It's necessary to always keep that door closed, not just in one reality, but in all of them. If that door would have been left open, let's say in the world you know as real, then the draft would eventually reach other realities and worlds, affecting the people which live in them. So Gambit rightly asks, how come nobody's noticed any of that? Exactly one person did. The raving lunatic you know as Bishop, a chronal anomaly. He was present at the exact moment when all the different realities split asunder. And he continues. Charles Xavier's death meant Jean Grey was never trained into use of her powers. She never became Phoenix and therefore never repaired the Emcron crystal in the actual reality. And so everything is eventually going to collapse. Uh, Jaff pleads with Gambit to take that chunk of crystal and use it to send Bishop back in time to prevent Xavier's death. Gambit ain't so sure, but eh, he's up to give it a shot. Why not? <laughs> Back outside, Sunspot and Gladiator are exchanging punches with Roberto absorbing a whole lot of energy. Then, blink. Now that is a blink, not the girl blink. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gladiator is crystallized. Hell, everyone who isn't an external or Richter is turned to glass. The externals, plus Richter, all beeline it to the M. Cran crystal. 
Inside, Gambit commits to the plan, takes a chunk of that stuff, and the team teleports out. Minus Roberto, that is. He stays behind since he'd absorbed as much energy as a star. Heading on into Gambit and the Externals number 4, June 1995 cover date. The Maze by Fabian Nicieza and Salvador LaRocca. Is LaRocca right, or I, I feel like it should be? I say LaRocca, but in th- this issue is weird because it's it, it plays with time a lot. It's just, it's very, very... We're going to try to explain it the best we can. Oh, it's, I mean, yeah, this, this yeah. Gambit story... Really, I think it's the one that spins out the most weird, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what is going on? The other stuff is all these taking place on, like, Earth. On and, the like, same plane you or know, something, This yeah. is like, where did he, what is going Linear, on? Why is he yeah. doing this? But, uh, <laughs> uh, we open in the now with none of the externals. Instead, it's Dazzler and Exodus tro- trolling the Morlock tunnels looking for baby Charles. What they find instead is Nanny's destroyed carcass. We jump ahead to later, where we find Richter's in a darkened room. Also in this room is Apocalypse, and in Apocalypse's arms is baby Charles. Then, jumping back to earlier, Lila and Gambit are running through the Morlock tunnels. Richter's chasing them. And this is all going according to plan, you see. They know Richter is an idiot and would chase them upon return, so they split up. Gambit and Lila would be the bait. Guido and Jubilee would take the M-Cran shard to Magneto. And Richter proclaims that he'll be able to track them anywhere they go, even if they split up. Sure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to, uh, forward to later, okay, Apocalypse is interrogating Richter. And he wonders why he'd chase Gambit instead of Jubilee, who had the M-Cran shard. And Richter thought Apocalypse wanted Gambit more. Well, he didn't exactly catch either of them, yeah. so it's kind of a moot point, right? It's pretty clear that he failed in either account, so <laughs> whatever. You at least could have said you failed at getting Jubilee, right? <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> we jump back to earlier, and Jubilee is running through the Morlock tunnels, and she's carrying both the Emkron shard and baby Charles. Turns out that she's being chased by none other than Guido. What? <laughs> oh, he tells her it's nothing personal. He just hates Gambit. Uh, he, maybe he's in love with Lila Cheney, uh, sort of like the Prime Universe, Marvel, Marvel Universe version. But here, she's only got eyes for the Cajun. He takes the shard and the child away from her. He claims that Apocalypse had planted a bug inside him a few months earlier. Remember, back on the Shi'ar homeworld here, uh, Richter uh, mentioned that someone has a bug on him. Right. Well, it was Guido. Uh, Taking the baby and the shard, he apologizes to Guido, and he leaves. Forward on to later, Richter pleads ignorance about what Guido and Jubilee were up to, and since he's an idiot, there's little doubt that he's telling the truth. Back to earlier, Gambit and Leela double back, fearing that Richter wasn't just whistling Dixie when he said he could track them. The last thing they want to do is lead him to Xavier's. They run into Guido, and baby Charles is in his arms, and Gambit's got questions, and Richter, who's also nearby, has answers. Guido sold them out. Richter then starts using his quake powers to bring the roof down. Guido panics that this might also kill the baby, and he holds up the main support column to the tunnels with his own back. Gambit only has time to choose who to save, either Lila or baby Charles and the M-Cran shard as well. Relegating this entire endeavor a complete waste of time, Gambit <laughs> chooses Lila. <laughs> Guido releases the beam, which makes it so the only way he and baby Charles can go is actually deeper into the tunnels and not outside with Gambit and uh, Lila. We jump off to the later, 
Richter explains how he escaped the crumbling tunnels via a small access tunnel because we really needed to know that. Sure. Uh, it's like he's alive. That's all we. That's need all to we need to know. Somehow he uh, got out. Yeah. We don't need his root. Uh, now Gambit <laughs> shows him the baby, which surprises Richter quite a bit. He's also surprised that Guido survived the cave-in, though he's probably most surprised when Apocalypse crushes his skull like a like a grape. Moments uh, before, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, see you, Richter. Thanks for coming. But uh, see you at the party, Richter. Sorry, I had to say it <laughs> once. Just once. There you go. Uh, back at the tunnels, Gambit and Lyle are discovered by Dazzler and Exodus. Next. X-Men Omega, or, or more accurately, Amazing X-Men number four, which oh. we'll be getting to at the end of the episode. Oh, all right. uh, we go right into the next series. This is Excalibre number two. April 1995, stories called Burn by Warren Ellis, Roger Cruz, Renato Arlum, Charles Moda, and Eddie Wagner. It's a lot of it's a lineup. A lot there. of folks on this one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Warren Ellis here, born February 16th, 1968, in Essex, England. While in college, he contributed comic work to the college magazine Spike. Prior to becoming a professional comics writer, Ellis held jobs running a bookstore, running a pub, working in a record shop, and even did some manual labor. He claims he fell into comics journalism largely by accident, and when the folks he was working for decided to publish, start publishing their own comics, he decided why not give it a try. His first thing would be Lazarus, Lazarus Churchhood. Oh, boy. Easy for me to say. <laughs> Lazarus Churchyard, and that appeared in Blast Number 1 in 1991 from Tundra Press. In 1994, Ellis began working for Marvel Comics. He took over scripting duties on Hellstorm, Prince of Lies, with issue number 12. This is March 1994 cover date, and he'd stick around until the book's cancellation with its 21st issue. He'd hop over to the 2099 arena and do some Doom 2099. He'd also do Excalibur, which is why we're talking about him right now. Yeah, he just happened to be standing there when the Age of Apocalypse washed over him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then Roger Cruz, also known as Rogerio da Cruz Corota, was born February 22nd, 1971 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He started his professional career with Editora Abril, a major Brazilian publisher and printing company. Also, one of the biggest media holdings in Latin America. Mostly lettering Portuguese translations of American comics is what Roger did. He was introduced to the American comics world by Art and Comics Studio and found himself getting work from Marvel Comics. Accused of swiping or aping the style of his favorite artist, he taught himself to draw by copying uh, other pencilers, including Jim Lee and perhaps most obviously James, Joe Madureira. Madureira. I always have a lot of problems with that one. <laughs> But he did teach himself to draw that way, but, you know, uh, we've said it before, it's worth repeating. Joe wasn't terribly pleased and included a newspaper headline reading, Cruz swipes again in Uncanny X-Men number 325, that was October 1995 cover date. In fairness, and also worth repeating, though, Cruz was doing an awful lot of fill-in work for Joe Mad, who, at the time, was very likely too preoccupied with Chrono Trigger and or Final Fantasy III to get his pages in. We do know all about his... Uh, Love for video games, which he's very public about, but uh, yes. Roger Roger Cruz, whether he swiped that, I think he's definitely developed his own look more recently. Sure, so, yeah, sure, and, and and I mean, if you're if you're buying a collected edition of work from that time, yeah, you kind of want it to be in the same style, right? So. He, exactly, like you say, he's doing fill in, so you want it to sure. be stylistically correct. Now we also have Renato Arlum. Not much online about this fella. However, a chronological listing of his published work shows that this very issue is his first. So uh, bag it and board it. Uh, 
Now, he has or had a blog where he describes himself as a graphic designer, designer, illustrator, and that he worked with drawing since 1986. And uh, since no one's argued that point, I guess we'll take his word for it. Uh, it sounds good enough to me. Uh, Charles mm. Mota, even less is known about him, uh, whose first and only published work is this very issue. And then there's Eddie Wagner, who we have a tiny bit more about him. This wasn't his first or only published work. It was actually his third. Yes. How about that? Yeah, now into the story. We left off last time with Switchback and Juggernaut meeting up with Destiny in Avalon. Destiny would touch Switchback, and then her mind was flooded with visions of Apocalypse's America. The visions end when they break contact. Now, speaking of Apocalypse's America, we shift scenes over to Manhattan, where the Madri are attacking Proudstar and the Ghost Dance. Proudstar pontificates about something or another before being shot in the back. Uh, on their way to Antarctica, Nightcrawler and his fellow refugees are choking to death from the submarine's busted air conditioning. The Excalibur sub fires off a flare to alert an oncoming ship. Now, this freighter decides to lend a hand, and they cut through the submarine's door with torches. Now, the, the captain of this freighter is... Callisto. First appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 169, May 1983, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Uh, we first met Callisto when she was leader of the Morlocks, kidnapped Angel, intending to make him her mate, even started cutting off his feathers so he couldn't get away. Bested in a duel by Storm for Warren's freedom, which also left Storm as Morlocks' leader. Callisto would then kidnap Kitty Pride in an attempt to force her into marrying Caliban. More on him in a bit. This also didn't work out that well for her. She's not a very good matchmaker, what we find no, out about no. Callisto. Uh, during Colossus's postage perilous time as Peter Nicholas, Callisto had her normally scarred face repaired by the Morlock mask. And they even started having a thing. Until Mask took her beauty away, then thing it concluded rapidly. <laughs> uh, during what Marvel laughably referred to as the last Morlock story, Callisto fell for another Rasputin, the ever-elusive Mikhail. The arc ended with the apparent death of the Morlocks, but they were actually just sent to an alternate dimension where they all wanted to run up a hill or something like that. Yeah, it wasn't, very, wasn't, wasn't the greatest story, yeah. Back to the story. Callisto agrees to take the refugees to Avalon. Nightcrawler, however, is nowhere to be seen. You see, it, it turns out, like a true hero, he ported himself out of the Death Trap oh, submarine, leaving all. his fellow refugees behind, yeah. Uh, in the skies above, Apocalypse's pale riders are hovering. Now, this is that group with Dam Damask, uh, Danny Moonstar, and Dead Man Wade. Yeah. As a matter of fact, right now, Danny is carving up Wade's head to play her quote, disappearing graffiti trick with his healing factor. <laughs> Weird thing to do. Right? Uh, whatever. <laughs> now, they're contacted by a really awful CGI-looking apocalypse. Uh, he updates their mission, so they're no longer just following Nightcrawler to learn where Avalon is. They're actually there to go to Avalon and kill everyone in Avalon. Oh, mission update. All right. Well, mm -hmm. uh, take that down. Uh, Wade lets out a scream. He's growing tired of being hacked and slashed, and Damascus also had enough, and so she kills Danny Moonstar. Yep, out with a bang. <laughs> wow. It's like, okay, <laughs> wasn't that your colleague? Fine. All right. Uh, down on the waters, the refugees board Callisto's freighter. She directs them to, to a ballast tank, which she claims is scan shielded. After locking them in, she dumps them all into the icy Atlantic and they die. Uh, the ship then drifts into an atrocity zone, which is a fancy name for a place where Apocalypse drops all the bodies. Kurt reveals himself and is shortly joined by Mystique who, as luck would have it, was flying above. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Yeah. Uh, Ex Excalibre was a tough one to get through. I mean, um, it was really just kind of like unnecessarily mean and brutal, that little bit yeah. there, but all right. <laughs> Uh, Excalibre number three, May 1995, Body Heat by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. We met Warren. Let's meet Lashley. Very little can be found online about his early years. Uh, we assume he was born somewhere in the Western Hemisphere sometime during the latter half of the 20th century. He started working for, for Marvel with Excalibur number 70. It was October 1993, cover date, and he stuck around long enough to take part in the Age of Apocalypse. He's got a website, leadkillaboom.com. Yeah, I mean, all, a lot of these guys, you know, they, they are loomed so large now, but this is them 20 years ago just starting out. So there's yeah, just freshmen. Not a yeah. lot to say at this point, but now they're like the, the premier cover artists or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, we open this issue with Nightcrawler and Mystique getting reacquainted. Kalisto, as well as the rest of her crew, they're all dead. Huh. <laughs> so off-panel killing. Uh, so now, really, Nightfall... so really, those refugees, <laughs> those refugees would have died anyway. So it all worked out, right? Yeah, Everything's it, fine. It <laughs> they just at least they didn't suffer unless <laughs> unless drowning is a uh, drowning and freezing might be. I don't know. We'll f- don't don't think about it too much. <laughs> At least they have plenty of company in that atrocity zone. <laughs> uh, now, Nightcrawler and Mystique climb into her airship. Uh, it's revealed that she wasn't even looking for Nightcrawler. She just really wanted to kill the pirates. So, wow. you know, double whammy. Uh, now, back with the Pale Riders, Wade asks the mask why she had to kill Moonstar. She tells him to shut up and also tells him that uh, Danny never liked him anyway. Wow, what a bully. Sheesh. Right? She's awful. <laughs> Uh, Mystique and Kurt land in Antarctica. The Blue Falk argue, and it becomes physical when Kurt realizes that Mystique has been fleecing would-be refugees wanting to travel to Avalon, and then dumping their bodies in the atrocity zone. (laughs) They eventually make their way to the ferry and finally to Marco. He guides them into Avalon, and along the way they set up camp, and Kane tells them about having a stepbrother named Charles. Once they enter Avalon, Mystique learns that Destiny has a son named Doug Ramsey, a.k.a. Cypher. First appearance was New Mutants number 13, March 1984, cover date, created by Claremont and Sal Buscema. A friend of Kitty Pride's who turned out to be a mutant with the power to master languages. Mm-hmm. What a power. Learned about the New Mutants from Cannonball, for, uh, who needed help communicating with the techno-organic alien Warlock. Doug joined up and became close pals with Warlock. He'd help rescue Psylocke from Mojo in her first American appearance, and he's killed when he takes a bullet meant for teammate Rain Sinclair. Headma- Headmaster Magneto explains the death to Doug's parents as a hunting accident. Doug never came out as a mutant to his folks. There's also that Doug Locke thing that followed, but we already discussed that a few episodes, and it wasn't him, so yeah, don't worry about it. Um, imagine going to, it's like, oh, he died in a hunting accident. Yeah. Oh, oh, at, least well, he, at least he wasn't a mutant. Yeah, really. He wasn't touching no mutant, were he? Anyway. <laughs> Now, back to the story. After a reunion, uh, together they all travel to the Avalon Village. Mystique also tells Irene, that's Destiny, that she's only come she's only come this far in order to take her back with them. Uh, once in the village, Irene reveals that the vision she saw when she touched Switchback told her that they're all going to die. The very moment, at the entrance to Avalon, Dead Man Wade and Damask arrive. The very sight of the place is enough to bring Damask to tears. She cannot comprehend that such a beautiful place exists in this world. Inside the village, Mystique fills Destiny in on Magneto's plan, and we'll just let her tell it. She says, In America, Eric Lencher, Magneto, has found a man who appears to have manifested here from an alternate timeline, a timeline where Apocalypse never came to power. 
If Eric can confirm the truth of it, then he sees the chance to actually twist our time towards that better world. He needs you to confirm it. That's pretty much as, as interested in the subject as I thought she was. <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, actually, no. actually, that's Southern Californian for fascinated. That, that <laughs> voice is riveted, but you, can, you just can't tell. <laughs> no, from, from this statement, Destiny is spooked because she's afraid if she were to leave Avalon, the entire place would be destroyed. While they debate and they talk about the importance of suns, there's a tremendous explosion. Marco hits the ground and mutters Charles as he does so. It's Wade and Damask, and they've got rockets. Damask doesn't act, though, and when he asks, and Wade asks why, she claims to want to be one of the good guys and defect from Apocalypse's employ. Right there, like... Right there, right there, one pass. Ta-da! Then she stabs him in the throat. Before Wade's healing factor can kick in, Nightcrawler bamps in and teleports out while holding poor Deadpool's head. We wrap up with Nightcrawler, Mystique, Damask, and Switchback vowing to defend Destiny as they get her out of Avalon. On to Excalibur number 4, June 1995. On Fire by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. After the dust settles, the gang heads back into the village to attempt to convince Destiny to leave with them once more. Switchback performs her mutant ability to jump back in time a few seconds to avoid getting a headache. This sounds stupid, but it will be important later. Um... They find a very pained juggernaut being cradled by Doug Ramsey. Well, most of a pained juggernaut anyway. He no longer has legs. Um, Doug reveals that his language power is what allows all the folks in Avalon to understand one another, which I don't think that's his actual power. It doesn't I don't seem, think he can facilitate. Was, yeah, he can understand and speak. Yeah, I don't but think I, he, uh, unless he's translating for everybody. I mean, that, that's got to be annoying. That's a lot. It's a lot to do. Yeah. yeah, it's like, I really want to talk to her. Can you, can you come with <laughs> Uh, now, he also says that Destiny won't be so quick to return to America just because some lunatic named Bishop ranted about alternate dimensions. Uh, it's here that it's revealed that Kurt's little team will be known as X-Caliber. Hey, they actually said it! Hey. Yes! Uh, now, what they say is that they're actually named after a bullet, so a caliber bullet with an X carved in it. Sure, so, why not? That's why not? Uh, reinforcements then arrive in the forms of the citizens of Avalon. Mystique wants to start killing, but Doug talks her down from that. Turns out the citizens are possessed by the Shadow King. Mystique kills one of them anyway, just for good measure. What? After body hopping a bit, Shadow King attempts to possess Destiny using a body of her friend Marcus. Damask used her powers on Marcus, and we learned that he was once her teacher. Okay. Uh, that was coincidental. <laughs> uh, the, the Shadow King escapes as she performs a psionic skinning. Doug refers to Excalibur as animals, responsible for tearing down the once perfect Avalon, and Nightcrawler tells him to shut up at his face. <laughs> Shadow King pops up again, this time possessing Mystique and causing her to shapeshift into Sabretooth. So now you know why this this book has such an ugly cover. <laughs> uh, Nightcrawler then bamps it with Damask and Switchback. When he teleports, he... Well, we'll just let him say it. He's in my mother. When I teleport, I spend a fraction of a second in the adjacent dimension. I'm praying that he uses the same space to make his transitions between hosts. If I teleport all three of us and switch back and extend our transition time... You know, that'd be mighty convenient if all Farouk used the same alternate dimension as Kurt, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it wouldn't have... Hmm. Yeah. Naturally, that's exactly the case. So, uh, the they, Banff they bamf. dimension, we call it. Right? <laughs> yes. They bamf and switch back by some transition time, and Damask psionically skins the Shadow King. 
As a parting shot, the Shadow King hops back into the body of Marcus and fires a blast at Destiny. Doug pulls an Xavier and also a prime Doug Ramsey and hops in front of the bullet. (laughs) (laughs) As Doug lay dying, Destiny swears by all she holds holy that she will take down Apocalypse. Next, X-Men Omega. What this was really missing was a multi-panel page of Destiny looking into the sky screaming, Doug! You know, just for panels and panels. Just, no! Uh, Anyway, uh, X-Men, number two, April 1995, cover date. This is titled Choosing Sides by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scroach. Or Scroachy? Scroach. Jeff Loeb, we talked about him a little bit. Let's do a little quicker one here. Joseph Jeff Loeb III was born January 29th, 1958 in these United States. Perhaps somewhere around Stanford, Connecticut, because that is where he grew up. Graduated from Columbia University in New York with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. His filmmaking debut was writing Team Wolf with Matthew Wiseman, the Matthew J. Fox vehicle. When Loeb was working on a screenplay for DC Comics character The Flash, that deal fell through. But not before Jeff had the opportunity to meet then-DC Comics head honcho Jeanette Kahn, who wanted him to write some comics. And his first work was the eight-issue Challengers of the Unknown miniseries, March through October 1991 cover dates. Loeb did a few one-off stories for DC Comics, including Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, Halloween Special, which is a prestige format, came out December 1993. Then he'd do Cable for Marvel, which then became X-Men, and here we are. Yes, across the table, we had Steve Scrocy, Scrocy, well, Steve Scrocy, we'll say. Sure. Uh, not, not a whole heck of a lot about him, uh, other than he's of Croatian descent, and of course, that's only if the internet isn't lying to us. His comics career started in 1993 when he drew Ecto Kid. That's a Clive Barker series from Marvel's Razorline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, then he'd do himself a little cable, and now he's doing himself a little of the book that filled in for cable. Yeah, that's how it happened. Uh, <laughs> before hopping into the story, we received an email from friend of the show, Tom Panarisi, about a question we raised a couple of weeks back when we discussed X Men number one. We asked if there was any significance to Nate's troop putting on a produ- production of Shakespeare's. A Midsummer Night's Dream. Neither of us knew, but Tom came to the rescue and he wrote, Chris and Reggie, long-time listener, first-time caller here. I've loved your show for a while and have been enjoying the Age of Apocalypse episodes. I actually never read the storyline because I dropped all the X-Men books right after the Blood Ties crossover. Don't compliment me on taste, however. I bought and still own all of Deathmate. <laughs> I, I did too, and then I realized a few months ago I was missing one, and I, I actually went out and bought it. Oh, I, I don't you, know why. So you're yeah. worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he continues. Anyway, at one point in episode 101, part two of the coverage, you guys noted that a group of mutants was using a traveling theater company as their cover. They were going through the countryside performing Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. You guys wondered what the significance was, and lucky for you, I teach high school English and have used the play class before. Now, he says the basic plot is that a bunch of people have sex in the woods. Okay, it's a little more complicated than that, but where the illusion might be coming from is that for most of the play, the fairies and other creatures who live in the forest are manipulating a group of humans through love potions and trickery. Much like a number of Shakespeare's comedies, Twelfth Night, As You Like It, The Tempest, to name a few, people who are expected to act a certain way within the confines of society leave that society somehow, act completely differently, and hijinks ensue. 
Anyway, the allusion to the play could be that our favorite mutant heroes are in a dream state, mm. and because of the manipulations of those with greater powers are not acting the way they normally would in the real world. Everything is out of place, and either nobody or maybe one or two people realize it, which seems to be what's going on in the Age of Apocalypse. Oh, that makes sense. He says, uh, if you're interested in a Midsummer Night's Dream, I recommend seeing if you can find a good live performance. There's a lot of beautifully written iambic pentameter and funny dirty jokes, and they work really well even 400 years later. If you're interested in seeing a film version of the 1999 movie starring Kevin Kline, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christian Bale, Callista Flockhart, Stanley Tucci, and Rupert Everett is worth checking out. I'd also recommend issue 19 of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which is where really my, my closest to it, but they don't do the yeah. whole play there. Uh, series for another way, a comic uses Shakespeare, plus it has beautiful Charles Vess artwork. Keep up the great work, guys. Can't wait for the next episode. Yes, wow. big, big thanks well, for, huge uh, thanks for, for that. And, and it, yeah. makes, it does make perfect sense. This is like their alternate, uh, you know, potion-induced or whatever, you know, like induced. Being out of the Altered yeah. state, you know. So, yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so real big thanks to Tom Panarese there. Uh, he's got a great site over at popcultureaffidavit.com where you can find his writings as well as his podcasts. Uh, currently, he's coming towards the end of a series called It Came From Syndication, where he and a guest explore a variety of programs from the 1980s and into the early 90s that aired in syndication. Uh, he's, a, he's a New York guy. Uh, he's actually a Long Island guy. Him and I... Him and I spent our teen years probably like three miles apart from one another. Oh, wow. We had the same comic stores and everything. So it's his his nostalgia is basically my nostalgia, and I, I'd recommend you check it out. That's cool. Uh, yeah, he also has a, a series called My Life as a Teen Titan, which chronicles his his youth reading the Teen Titans or oh, the wow. new Teen Titans. It's it's a, it's a good it's a great site, and uh, we'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. But we will hop in now to X Men number two where we open with Domino fighting Rosovic, who we might know better as... Omega Red. Real name is Arkady Rosovic. First appearance was X-Men Volume 2, Number 4, January 1992, created by Jim Lee and John Byrne. He was implanted by the Soviet government with a car- carbonadium tentacles. <laughs> uh, Arkady proved to be a thorn in the side of Wolverine during his days with Team X, alongside Sabretooth and Maverick. Uh, Omega Red was resurrected post-Cold War by some other Wolverine thorn inside, Matsuo Tetsura Yaba. Tetsura Yaba. I did very well there. Thank you very much, Chris, for your accolades. Uh, He'd lose to the X-Men a couple of times, but always manages to escape. And Rosovich works for the mutant underground. Domino is hoping he might give up some info about a certain telepath that he's currently hunting. Since they're fighting, you probably already know Arkady's answer. It was no. Rosovich might be getting a little too big for his britches, though. He believes he'll have no problem beating up a lone female, but our money, uh, first of all, is on Domino. Second of all, she's not even alone. Nope. (laughs) We're going to meet Grizzly. Real name, Theodore Winchester. First appearance, X-Force number 8. March 1992 cover date, created by Rob Liefeld. He's a member of Cable's Wild Pack. Later, Six Pack. Then he would join Weapon (laughs) P-R-I-M-E. Uh, we had a lot of weird names in the nineties and, uh, his, his name, it used to be like a comedy thing where like people with like really proper names were kind of grungy. Yeah. Like Chester's and with Winchester's. It would always, <laughs> just, be, it would always be a real sl- a sloppy like kind of dude. Yeah. yeah. Like an odd juxtaposition between name and, and look likeness. And I think that might be what was going on with uh, our man Grizz here. Good old Teddy Winchester. Well, uh. <laughs> 
while Grizzly and Omega Red size each other up, Domino stabs Rosovich through the gut. Just then, a third member of their gang arrives. It's Caliban. We talked about, we intimated him before. His first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 148, August 1981, cover date, created by Claremont and Cockrum. He's an albino mutant who was torn out of his home by an abusive father. His pop gave him the moniker Caliban after a character from William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Found a home amongst the Morlocks and almost married Kitty Pride. He'd later become Apocalypse's Horseman of Death and have a rather large growth spurt. He would eventually come around and join X-Force. Domino and the gang contentiously chatted out, but managed to give us a refresher on their mission. Find Nate Gray and either hire him or, fi- or fry him. Now, speaking of Nate, he's currently being trained in the art of hand-to-hand combat by Forge. And Forge wipes the floor with him pretty easily. Uh, Teresa Rourke Cassidy is watching the sparring session, and uh, we learn that here in the AOA, she goes by the moniker Sonic rather than Siren. <laughs> Just to be confusing. Why, you know, why not? Why not, right? <laughs> now, Nate's annoyed, and he thinks that he's above, you know, he's kind of above this hand-to-hand thing. Forge disagrees. So Nate stomps off like a child would. Uh, Forge is afraid that he might be pushing him toward Essex. You know, that's the hitchhiker who totally isn't Mr. Sinister that they picked up at the end of last issue. Right, yeah. Uh, if he's so scared of pushing him toward Essex, how about he just doesn't do that then? You know, right? <laughs> just stop doing it and you don't have to be scared of that. So, Forge wasn't just whistling Dixie. He did indeed send Nate right over to Essex, who reveals that he is a bioengineer who used to work for Apocalypse, which is something we already knew. He also laments the fact that the rest of the troop are keeping their distance. I guess there aren't any mirrors in the Age of Apocalypse. I mean, this this guy <laughs> looks like this dude looks like a creep and a half. He's the uh, worst. Everyone's just giving you know it's a place where you give people the benefit of the doubt. I guess, uh, you know, the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, he asked Nate about his true parentage, which Nate is still in the dark about, and he then asked Nate if he's ever thought to use his telekinesis in order to fly, and so Nate does just that. Yeah. That night, the troop plans their next move, and it seems like there's a consensus that, consensus that they lay low until Essex suggests that they infiltrate a factory wherein unspeakable horrors occur daily in Apocalypse's name. Before we know it, they do just that. Like, literally, like, two panels later, you know? There's no thought <laughs> about there. it at all. They were like, well, I gotta tie my shoes, and that's it. Uh, Essex fills them in on McCoy's M.O., and we'll just let him tell it here. This McCoy had a theory. Using a bone marrow of otherwise discarded human corpses, it might, emphasis on might, be possible to extract enough DNA to provide a worthwhile supplement for the Alpha-class mutant. Uh, That's enough for Nate, who decides that they uh, ought to level this joint. Then the Madri appear and attack, but they pick the wrong dude on the wrong day to attack, at first anyway. Uh, Nate plays Icarus and flies a little too high, neglecting that there are Madri on the ground firing blasts at him. Not sure that's exactly how the story of Icarus went. You sure? That's not it. They weren't. He, he didn't get blasted out of the sky by a weird Maybe you're right. okay. It's been a while. Uh, <laughs> Forge calls for the troop to withdraw, and Ex- Essex is lost in thought, shocked that Nate Gray went down so quickly. Nate recovers, but not before a Madri is able to run off to inform Apocalypse that he's there. We rejoin the troop at dawn, and they're hankered down in an old farmhouse. Nate wakes up early and sneaks out. Sonic catches up with him. He says he's tired of being spoon-fed information by Forge. He wants to know everything about his past. So he's going to have to find out everything all by himself. Mm. Teresa insists that he take her along on his astral jaunt. 
Now they wind up going back to that schoolhouse where Nate had his most recent astral trip, uh, back in X-Men number one where he saw Magneto and Bishop arguing. Right, right. Now inside, they see Magneto playing with baby Charles, and Charles can totally see them. Whoa, bro. <laughs> you know, babies and dogs. It's, uh, That's it's, right. It's, it's, it's like a, it's like Al on Quantum Leap. They can see him. Uh, now Magneto turns around to face the interlopers, but Sonic breaks Nate's Psylink right away. <laughs> Say that eight times fast. Uh, no. <laughs> back inside the farmhouse, troop member Brute confronts Essex about being experimented on. Oh, that's right. Uh, Brute was experimented on by Mister Sinister. Not that we know that. No. So uh, Sinister kills him. Forge enters, but doesn't notice that Brute's been murdered and asks Essex to leave anyway. We wrap up with the arrival of Domino, Grizzly, and Caliban. On to X-Men number three, May 1995 cover date, titled Turning Point by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scrotz-E. Domino orders Forge to hand over that telepath. He ain't hip to the violence, and so she suffers. She offers to cut off his tongue. Essex uses this as an opportunity to slip away. Domino reads Forge's rap sheet, which includes working with Magneto and blowing up small factories and trains. Forge proclaims, exit stage left. Yeah, really. I mean, what the heck? Even. Anyway, uh, he throws a flash grenade to the ground, and he runs off to warn Nate of his persistent pursuers. And he runs into Toad and Mastermind first and decides to use the fact that Domino doesn't know what Nate looks like to their advantage. Domino eventually catches up and is left with the impression that Mastermind is the actual powerful telepath. He creates a great big illusion of apocalypse, which Domino sees through right away. Uh, She blows Mastermind away, leaving nothing but bones. Then Nate arrives and fights with Domino. The rest of the troop joins in. Toad stabs Caliban, and, but gets eaten by Grizzly for his troubles. Uh, then Forge and Sonic double-team Grizzly and manage to kill him rather quickly. Grizzly shouts out as he dies, which Domino hears. And it you know distracts her attention long enough uh, for Nate to zap her with some TK hoodoo. Uh, as she lay frozen, he forces her to re-watch all of her kills from the point of view of the victims. What a... Son of a... Anyway, uh... <laughs> that's, Nate, the, that's the, uh... That's the... What's it? The, the humane way to do it. Exactly. You know, now I'm gonna make you suffer through guilt. <laughs> anyway, uh... Nate and Forge rush toward each other and embrace, and Essex shows up and blames Brute's death on Domino, which kind of worked itself out, if yeah. you think about it. Uh, some time passes, and Nate realizes that Forge has been gone for a little too long. He rushes over to his shed and finds him laying in a pool of blood. With his last breaths, Forge telepathically tells Nate to find Magneto. As Forge dies, Nate releases one heck of a telekinetic outburst that destroys the shed, which uh, impresses Essex pretty well, but Nate doesn't really care that much about it. We wrap up with Essex revealing himself to be... something we've already uh, alluded to the entire time, Mr. Sinister! Gas! Oh, there you go! I mean... We wrap up his story, X-Man number four, June 1995. Story's called The Art of War by Jeff Loeb and Steve Schirmer. Uh <laughs> Now we open with the Shadow King reporting Domino's failure to Apocalypse, and he ain't pleased. And so he lets loose with a psionic temper tantrum. It's really quite a scene. Uh, he calms down upon realizing that Nate's sur- survival means that he's, you know, one of the fit. Right. Now, after dismissing the Shadow King, Apocalypse heads down to his dungeon to visit Magneto. 
elsewhere, Nate blessed Mr. Sinister while he rants and raves about how he trusted him, man. He even blows a giant hole in Mr. Sinister's gut, a wound which all Essex mends with the quickness. He asks Nate, what's he so mad about? And Nate is like, you killed Forge, duh. And Sinister <laughs> compares Forge finding Nate to any random person finding money on the ground. The point he's trying to get across, we think, is that Forge might have acted like a father to Nate, but surely wasn't one. And Nate is not having that. So Sinister invites him to enter his mind and finally see the truth. It seems like a not bad idea. But anyway, yeah. uh, inside Sinister's mind, Nate learns where he comes from. Sinister combines Scott Summers and Jean Grey's genetic materials, and we got us a Nate. With the help of some growth acceleration, of course. And then Scott Freedom, the come with me if you want to live bit we saw back in X-Men number one. Which Sinister allowed to occur, but didn't want to tip off the big A to Cyclops for his own treason. Back in reality, Sinister reveals his big plan. He wants Nate to kill Apocalypse. In fact, that was the point, that was the whole point of his creation to begin with. Just then, Sonic and Sauron enter the scene with a blast. Nate wraps them in a bubble and sends them away so they don't bear witness to the ugliness that's about to come. Nate then rears back and punches Sinister in the face, which Sinister laughs at, because uh, this is Nate's attempt at autonomy here, and he warns that Nate'll always just be a weapon, simply to be pointed at Apocalypse. Damn. <laughs> now, Nate continues pummeling the hell out of Sinister before flying off, and as Nate leaves, a bloodied Sinister smiles, but before he realizes he's bleeding, of course. He struggles to get to his feet and then realizes, uh-oh, not only am I bleeding, I'm bleeding a lot. Sinister slumps to the ground. Dead. Nate heads back to Sonic and Sauron to say goodbye. He's got a job to do. Forge told him to track down Magneto, remember? Looking skyward, Nate sees, Nate sees an image of Apocalypse torturing Magneto, and somehow he knows exactly where they are. <laughs> Next stop, the Citadel. He arrives during the fracas that occurred at the end of Factor X, where Apocalypse ordered all the captives culled, and we talked about that last week. He meets Scott and Gene just as they're making their escape, and the psychic bash backlash between Nate and Gene is enough to shock them both, which causes Cyclops to believe he's one of the bad guys, so he lets loose with the optic blasts. They straighten everything out soon enough, though. Uh, Gene offers to take Nate with them, but he refuses. So Scott and Gene leave, and Nate heads off to search for Apocalypse. Next, X-Men Omega. But first... <laughs> first, we're going to wrap up Amazing X-Men with Amazing X-Men number 4, June 1995 cover date. On Consecrated Ground by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Cubitt. Start off in Quebec, where a group of Madri priests are preparing a ceremony during which they will kill Bishop. The priest says... Do you understand the meaning of these words, heretic? You have proven yourself too great a threat of his most high lord. And they cut into Bishop's arm and let him bleed out into a goblet. They then take turns drinking of it. Ew. Yeah. Your knowledge of another world, of a place where apocalypse does not hold sway over the planet, must not be allowed to poison, to contaminate the minds of the empire. So the Shadow King, Apocalypse's great telepath, was expelled from your mind during the joining. Still, did he glimpse visions of his other world? The Apocalypse is strangely absent, and a long-dead mutant named Charles Xavier lives and fights for a peace and coexistence. That world cannot be allowed to pass. Magneto and his X-Men must be stopped 
for making it so. And thus, the genetrator bishop must die. Storm arrives before they can do any actual damage to Bishop. She whips up some hurricane winds and blasts the Madri away. She then unhooks Bishop from the uh, ceremonial cables sure, yeah. <laughs> and helps him get away. Uh, she winds up using her lock-picking p- skills after Bishop jogs her memory. Elsewhere, we join Quicksilver and Banshee, who are disguised as cloaked members of the Madri. Uh, they happen across one of the, the one true Jamie Madrox, who looks quite insane, and due to some McCoy bio-tampering, his body has been crippled. It also looks like he's wearing a diaper, which, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense, considering yeah. what he's been through, yeah. True. Uh, Jamie goes, have you, have you come to kill me? Has someone at last come to help me? Please, please, free, free me from Apocalypse. Oh, please. Uh, Pietro and Shaw know the only way to stop the Madri is by killing the real deal, but can they go through with it? Mm. Back in Westchester, Rogue's X-Men return home, but do not find who they expect. Rogue says, what happened here? Sabretooth goes, signs of a firefight. Plasma tracer burns. Your husband was out there. An apocalypse himself. And now? Hmm. Nothing's fresh. Sense cold. Except from the house. Daruski and his wife are here. And a kid. Charles? Nope, not Charles. Oh. Uh, there they meet up with Colossus and Kitty, Ilyana in tow. They learn here that a Generation Next are dead. Blink, this is the girl, feels guilty about being with the X-Men instead of with the youngsters, which is kind of an inversion on what happened in the prime Marvel Universe during the Phalanx Covenant. Mm. Uh, Rogue, Sabretooth, and Wildchild head to the Morlock Tunnels to search for baby Charles. What they find instead are Gambit and the Externals, being led out by Exodus and Dazzler. Gambit tells Rogue that baby Charles is still alive, but for the Tot's own safety, he had to let them be taken. Well, Sabretooth snorting really clogged my head there. Uh, Now, uh, Rogue ain't pleased, and she punches Remy through the sewer walls, and he goes flying and lands out on the school grounds. Where is he, Remy? Where? I had him, Rogue. Darling, I swear, sure. He's still alive, but I had no choice. I had to let the kid go. Of course, we know that he did, in fact, have a choice. He just chose the woman. Right. But uh, I wouldn't want to be the one to tell Rogue. I mean, he literally had a choice. They literally gave him an A or B choice. You yes. know? It wasn't a matter of, like, an esoteric thing. But uh, Rogue says, go, go where? With who? Start talking, Gambit, and for your sake, it better be good, and it better be the truth, or I swear, by all I hold holy, I'll kill you. We pop over to Quebec. Storm and Bishop fight off the Madri. The real Jamie begs Pietro and Sean to kill him. Kill us, X-Men. Do it quickly. You have no choice. Kill me and my replicants. The Madri will be left. Empty shells with no souls. So, is he trying to say that they actually have souls right now? Is that how that works? That's, I don't know. It's kind of a, that's a deep subject, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, the, the replicants of a Jamie Madrix. Uh, <laughs> before they can, Abyss shows up and yoinks Jamie away with his tendrils. Abyss then reveals everybody's deepest, darkest fears, which is basically the cliche letting people down and dying sort of stuff that we all kind of feel, really. I mean, we could have told him that. <laughs> he is a human still, you know, I mean. Shoot. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you and I are both scared of letting people down and dying. That's, so. you know, that's, and we can't even <laughs> replicate, so they're. 
<laughs> now, Banshee gets fed up and lashes out with a sonic blast, and that's uh, not terribly effective. Well, not effective against Abyss anyway, but it does cause a shockwave that brings the entire tabernacle down around them. Quicksilver quickly grabs Jamie Madrox and they flee the crumbling joint, and Jamie's still begging for death. Yes, Quicksilver goes, I will not kill you, boy. Madrox goes, no, you, you won't. Too, too noble, too good. Tell me, do you, do you love this woman, Aurora? Yes. And do you need, need this man, Bishop? Yes. Then you must save them. I must die. I, I, can, I can shut the madry down. They're parts of my soul, but it'll take everything I have. And uh, now free of that place, I, I will take their lives, even if it means my own. In this way, I, I stab at Apocalypse's heart. No, don't give him Madrox. Don't let Apocalypse win. For the love of heaven, don't sacrifice another life to him. But Jamie does. He uh, wills himself to death, and the madry stops. Theoretically, couldn't he have done that like ages ago? Like, first thing, you think he would yeah. just shut it off, you know what I mean? Like, you're yeah. done. Uh, Storm, Bishop, and Quicksilver reconnoiter, and Pietro uh, reveals that Sean has sacrificed himself. Also, Jamie Madrox has. Back to Westchester. Gambit reveals to Rogue that Guido took Charles to keep him safe. Gambit, you son of a... You let Guido take my child! He was the only one who could brought your baby out of Demes alive. Well, it's not entirely true there, pal. Yeah, there's Dasha holding Rogue back, and she says, He had no choice, Rogue! At least Charles is still alive! We can save him! Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, boy. Uh, so Dazzler's buying into Gall- G- Gambit's con here, right? I mean, that's... Oh, God, I, I wasn't expecting that. Don't buy. <laughs> <laughs> then, after the uh, the dispute is settled here, a Nightcrawler bamps in with Destiny. And then Bishop, Quicksilver, and Storm return. Sabretooth goes, Everybody did pretty much what they were supposed to do. Except for LeBeau, big surprise. So what do we do now? Quicksilver goes, now, Creed, we have to regain the piece of the Emcon crystal. I gotta start that one over. Now, Creed, we have to regain the piece of the Emcon crystal, rescue Magneto and my brother, and then what we do with the X-Men have always done. We give our all, our lives, to make this the last day Apocalypse fails. Oh, is that all you gotta do? Just give your lives? That's all fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And next, X-Men Omega, but really... (laughs) But first... Let me ask you something. Were you wondering what the rest of the Marvel Universe was up to during the Age of Apocalypse? No, no, not really. Well, well you're going to find out anyway, oh, right. because next week, X-Universe 1 and 2. Yeah, that should be kind of a fun little aside, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> what's happening in the rest of the universe, and uh, we're going to have fun with that, and then wrap this one with the episode 6, it looks like, right, yes. where we're going to head to, but boy, this is one... Kind of crazy story, yeah, you know what I mean? It is, it is. Uh, wow. Yeah, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things happening. Hope hope everyone's uh, able to uh, hang in there with our retelling of it. It does all, <laughs> I mean, amazingly, it does all make sense. It's just very silly in some places. Yes. Uh, and sometimes very there uneven. some convenient things are happening in there. Uh, but if you want to, uh, you know, write in about some of those conveniences or about the Age of Apocalypse or... Tell us about other of Shakespeare's great works or anything that's on your mind. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mill history. 
Yeah, we're actually gathering a lot of emails and a lot of uh, reviews that uh, yes. we'll, we'll we'll deal with once we're out of the Age of Apocalypse. Right. When we, when we return to prime cosmic treadmill, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, take care of that. Uh, you can tumble us on Tumblr at cosmicteemailhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings about DC Comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com and see Chris's daily writings uh, about DC Comics on chrisoninfiniteearths.com where he writes a uh, review and a, whatever you want, a breakdown of... Discussion uh, of a, sorts. A discussion <laughs> of, of a different issue from DC Comics can come from any time in their history. Lately you've been doing, you started as Vartox Week. It's now become yes. Vartox Two Weeks going into... Three weeks soon, you know, or, or heading into seven its third days week. just yeah. isn't enough for Vartox. There's a lot Vartox of Vartox requires. in there, so uh, it's yeah. awesome. You got to check it out, folks. <laughs> it's it's really a, a whole lot of fun to uh, really see this deep dive on a character that probably hasn't had character, yeah. other deep dives like this. Chris at InfiniteEarths.com. You got to check it out. Check out the uh, the show's website here, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find the chronological listing of uh, every uh, episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, uh, Weird Comics History, Real Comics History, and now the Young Animal Gatherums, where we're going through we're going through our reads from uh, a year or two ago uh, on the uh, Young Animal books as they came out. Yep. So uh, you can see how we uh, how we uh, evolved in our. Uh, <laughs> In our opinions, or how we haven't. Who knows? You know? Or how we haven't. This is yes. the this is the way to track it. So you see our, how inconsistent we are. And uh, <laughs> again, I want to thank you. We have been we have been accruing a lot of mails and reviews. A lot of people talking about the age of apocalypse, and we we are really grateful. We got a lot of nice messages. We're going to absolutely deal with those, as Chris said, after we finish this six part thing. So. Don't feel like we've we haven't seen them. We're just gonna probably we, frankly, it, it may be something we have to handle almost by itself, or we'll, we'll work something Maybe, out. Yeah. Uh, also, thanks to Tom first for letting us know about Midsummer Night's Dream. Absolutely, uh, that was an awesome piece of information. And uh, I would say that my schooling failed me, but I did go to New York City Public School, so <laughs> big big surprise there. I you know I read one Shakespeare while in public school, and that was Romeo and Juliet. Uh, but I did read of Mice and Men t- three times. Wow, so that's great. I know that it's a good book. It's, I don't know if it's a read three times <laughs> good book, but it was good. Uh, but we did uh, we did like Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and Hamlet, and that was it. Oh yeah, we did, we never yeah, even got three. there. No, yeah. Romeo Romeo and Juliet was all we could handle. I'm trying to think if we ever did. No, definitely no other Shakespeare. I don't think we even did other plays. I just don't think that they wanted wow. to push the uh, envelope at all. At Not even old. Oedipus. Uh, you know what? No, you know, I don't know. We didn't do a, a Oedipus. Now I think about it, though, we might have done Othello. So maybe we did do another okay. Shakespeare. Another Shakespeare, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think that's all we got for my uh, high school of memories this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? <laughs> no, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. See ya. As a world keeps going, we live these days. Dollar bill done goes the whole world crazy while sitting on the I never hesitate a moment to enhance my freedom Since I need that escape, I'll take my pull Send me thugs on the corner trying to act all cool I'm pretty much out of character, I look right through The transparent exterior You and my foot getting red and I'm the narrator Thought you was keeping me, but I was aware of you 